Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you alongside reporters to talk Arizona politics. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, a national reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Today, we have a very special episode of The Gaggle featuring our very own state governor, Doug Ducey. Governor, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you decided to join us. I've been trying to get you on on the show since January, since your last State of the State. We have a lot of listeners who've been wanting to hear from you, so thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here. It's always great to be back at the Republic. (laughs) Your Democratic challenger for Governor David Garcia appeared on our podcast in May. So listeners, if you missed that episode and you want to hear him, you can scroll back a bit. Governor, I've got a lot of questions for you. They're all going to kind of follow the theme of your first term and what the job of really running the state has been like for you. All signs show that you have a clear advantage over your Democratic challenger, David Garcia. Do you have a sense as to whether or not those polls are accurate? Well, you never know. I mean, I think in this environment, you never know. I got out of the prediction business after 2016. So I think we should work hard every day, fight for every vote. I have sensed that we've we've created some separation and we want to to continue that. Uh, But we've been neck and neck for a long, long time. This is a battle. The country's divided. The state is is very much divided. And that's why I I think you can't uh, take your foot off the gas until 8 p.m. on November 6th. So we go back a few years. Yes, we do. I started covering you in 2013. You first expressed interest, I think uh, it would have been maybe in the fall. I think I was driving back from Prescott after the Yarnell Hill fire, and mm-hmm. you called me and you said you were filing some exploratory paperwork to run for governor. I had to find the nearest rest stop so I could file a story about it. And here we are, five years later, we've had are good times. We've had not so good times. But you now have a full term, four full years under your belt. What have you learned about the state and the people that you represent in that time? Well, of course, I'm a lot wiser and smarter governor than I was four years ago. There's there's a lot to wrap your arms around. You remember the race very well. Uh, there's certain issues that decide the race, but once the race is over, uh, there's 35,000 state employees. There's a, a $40 billion combined budget, two, 220 boards and, and commissions. Uh, none of that comes up on, on the campaign trail. So getting your arms around the actual government, moving your agenda forward, uh, and I believe we've had a lot of success in, in doing that, but being a lot smarter about how to get things done, how to move different levers uh, to have more success with less friction is something we uh, have become much better at. Can you take us to a moment or two where you felt like, all right, I've really kind of made it as a governor? No, I don't think I could point where I've made it as a governor. You're you're always on uh, you're always being evaluated, and there are certain moments uh, when we passed the the first budget uh, over the weekend where I don't think anybody thought that that was going to happen. I think it passed it early in the morning on, on a Saturday. Uh, that was a f- good feeling of accomplishment. Of course, Proposition 123 was a, a feeling of, of accomplishment, the Opioid Epidemic Act. 
bipartisan, unanimous, was a feeling of accomplishment, the American Civics Act, and the 20% uh, by 2020 teacher pay increase. But we knew early on, I actually think we knew after uh, the hard-fought victory on Prop 123 that it was an angry electorate. I mean, $3.5 billion additional to K-12 education without raising taxes, and you can't celebrate on election night because they're still uh, counting the votes. So uh, I don't think that there's a place where I could say, okay, we've made it, but I do think we've been going in the right direction, taking two steps forward. So beyond the legislative wins and maybe the policy wins that we're all familiar with, mm -hmm. is there anything behind the scenes that you got to participate in or you got to see or you got to help make happen that helped change someone's life or outlook or just a moment where you thought, geez, you know, like you would have never had that opportunity had you not been where you're at? Well, there's a number of things. One, I would point to a visit at Department of Child Safety uh, with Greg McKay and his team and the pride in uh, the turnaround at Child Safety. Now, of course, there's a lot more work to be done, but that was that was the most broken agency in the state, maybe the most broken agency in, in the country. And they've done an incredible amount of good work. They moved 11,000 kids into loving, permanent, and adoptive homes in the last year and were recognized nationally uh, by the Casey Family Foundation for that reward. That was something that, you know, I think a lot of governors might have just said, hey, don't, don't screw up anymore. Stay off the front page. We really got in there. Greg got in there to turn things around, to change the metrics. That was a feeling of, of, uh, of, of, of real appreciation for the good people and the good work inside state government. And the other thing I would say is the reception that we receive in Mexico. Mm -hmm. This is something that was very important to me as governor. Uh, on my first international trip, I handed out my business card and said, I I'm the new governor of Arizona, and, and I'd like a fresh start. And I believe that we've been able to really navigate a, a tough political environment and, and have real friendships there with our number one trading partner. And the reason that's important, that's like our number one customer. I mean, we, we rely on them for jobs here and vice versa, but it's also important because we are a border state, and, and that piece and prosperity uh, that you can have with relationship is something I, I'm uh, proud of. So when you handed out your business card, were they just so happy that uh, Governor... Jan Brewer had been replaced. Well, you know, Governor Brewer had to deal with really tough situations. I mean, Governor Brewer was was handed a, a broken budget as Janet Napolitano parachuted out of the state into Washington, D.C. So I wanted to focus not on, on the past. I wanted to focus on, on what I wanted to do rather than, than litigate tho those issues. But I, I'm thankful for what Governor Brewer was able to do in a really uh, – difficult, if not impossible, financial situation that she was left by Governor Napolitano in the Great Recession. So for as many wins as you've had, you've also had a lot of challenges, right? Yes, challenges. Uh, <laughs> we're all very familiar, of course, with the Red for Ed marches that came as a direct result of some of your education funding policies and, and those of the Republican-controlled state legislature. The fatal accident involving Uber, several of your agency directors ran into trouble. What have you learned in terms of how to deal with really high-profile problems with your agencies? I mean, how, how do you navigate that? Well, good gets better and bad gets worse. So we try to deal with whatever the issue is as, as quickly as we can with a, a high sense of urgency. Uh, I do think we've this is a, a job, of course, of communication, but also of decision making uh, around personnel and 
crisis and issue of the day, in addition to the agenda that you run on, that you, you, that you want to move forward, that animates what, why you, you ran. So I think, you know, we can go through each one of those individually, if you like, because they are different situations. Uh, but I think we've navigated them well. And um, you try to put yourself in a position where you can go out into any room uh, in the state, in any part of the state, in any community, and, and make your case. Uh, but you are judged on the decisions around these issues. Do you think you sometimes act too slowly in terms of trying to get out some of your, your messaging on these types of issues? Like in the case of Tim Jeffries, for example, that went on for forever. Sue Black, that's going on. Well, sometimes you're talking about personnel issues. Mm-hmm. And I I probably am going to err on the side of of, of loyalty and, and doing the right thing. But once an investigation is completed and, and we have the facts, uh, we're going to make decisions. This publication called for the termination of Greg McKay, a conquering hero in our state government in terms of what he's done for DCS. If I would allow the the editorial board to decide personnel decisions, we'd have a very different looking government. But sometimes because there is an investigation going on, and of course the uh, through the Freedom of Information Act and just good reporters doing their duty, they're going to be reporting on it as as well. If there if that would result in a termination, that doesn't mean that we acted too slowly. That means that we we got all the facts, and then made a decision. And for listeners who aren't familiar with Tim Jeffries, he's the former um, director of the Department of... Um, economic Security. Economic Security. It was a Rick Perry moment. <laughs> well, I almost said environmental security. Uh, economic Security. Um, he, he was there for about a year and a half and left, was terminated um, after... Uh, I believe he resigned. He resigned. Okay, we'll edit that down. He resigned. We don't need to. Re- we don't need that. <laughs> uh, he resigned um, after uh, scrutiny as to how he was handling his own personnel issues in that department. Accurate? I would say that was a department that was uh, in need of a lot of reform, and for twelve months we saw a, a lot of reform. Uh, then there was a situation where uh, Tim did resign, and we've moved forward. So. You had a very momentous decision to make about six weeks ago with the death of former Senator John McCain. The sixth-term senator and former prisoner of war died on August 25th after a 13-month battle with brain cancer. Sadly, we all knew where this headed. Um, You knew that you had a very important task ahead of you. Can you tell us about what it was like for you to have to carry the weight of trying to figure out who was going to succeed him. Well, it was an impossible task. I mean, uh, Senator John McCain, uh, replacing him is, uh, he's an irreplaceable figure in in American history and uh, certainly in in Arizona history. So I knew that I would have this responsibility. I was actually hopeful, Yvonne, that this would pass. I I mean, Senator McCain is the toughest man in the United States Senate. He battled this for a a long time. Angela and I went and visited with he and Cindy uh, in, in May. We had a great visit. Um, he actually said when when uh, we came in there that the biggest thing weighing on his mind was whether or not to run for re-election in 2022. And it broke the ice, and uh, we spent about two hours together, and I thought this guy is, is, is battling, and, and he was battling. Uh, but then when the news came, of, of course, I knew that I had that responsibility. And what I didn't want to have happen was a speculation game. So I had to keep... Uh, my counsel 
very close. I wanted to make sure that we focused on honoring Senator McCain the way that he deserved. Of course, comforting the family and comforting a lot of our citizens here as well that needed that. Uh, and everyone on my team wanted to work on this project. I think everyone in the Arizona state government uh, wanted to be a part of this. We actually had people coming to us and saying, uh, did I do something wrong? And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, I'm not participating on the McCain Memorial. And I said, well, we have to run a state government as well. And people would come in early and stay late. And I think you saw that. I don't know that the Capitol has ever looked better or shined brighter. And 15,000 Arizonans waited in line to pay respects at the casket or, or salute. And then, and then the country gathered. I mean, it was a national gathering. I can't remember a national gathering like that in my lifetime. It reminds me of what I see on PBS of John F. Kennedy's funeral. So um, I wanted to go through all of that, uh, but I had one name and one person in mind uh, who I was having conversations with. And thank goodness that Senator John Kyle is a patriot and a public servant because he had no desire to return back to Washington, D.C. When I first sat down with him, his biggest concern weighing on his mind was how much wood was he going to chop to get through the winter in Greer where he expected it to spend it with his wife, Carol. Um, um, and then over the course of, I think, some thought and prayer and conversation with Carol, he made the decision that he would do this. So you said that you kept uh, the people, the number of people that you were talking to about who a successor would look like tight. Who did you seek advice from? Well, I want to say that my, my audience here uh, are the people of Arizona. Uh, so I, I think you know my team and you you can speculate on, on who I would talk with but I'd rather keep those conversations in, in confidence at, at this time the good news about I think this decision and if people of course are going to judge you by your decisions if people want to judge me on the decision of John Kyle to the United States Senate uh, I welcome that did you have any second guesses no about, not at all so it was just John Kyle, that was the guy you wanted from the beginning, that was it. This was the guy that I wanted. If there were to be an opening, this is the person I wanted from the beginning, especially in the storm that they were uh, nominated into. If you think of what was going on in Washington, D.C., it seems like that the waters almost seem placid right now in comparison to how they were three weeks ago. Uh, John Kyle was that oak tree who could stand strong uh, in, in, in that crisis. I remember talking to him, I think it was his first day back, and he was ordering a cup of um, of hot chocolate, and he just sounded exhausted. And he did say, like, this is not really the Senate that I remembered. Things are a little different down here. So he is only expected to serve potentially, I guess I should couch that, until the end of the year. You might have to make another appointment. Is that weighing on your on your mind? And what would you be looking for in a, well, in a successor to Kyle? It, it's not weighing on my mind. I am hopeful that John Kyle will serve through 2020. He's certainly welcome to. That's completely up to him. I do think we have a, a lot of excellent public servants in the state of Arizona. We have some terrific business people. Uh, but ideally, I'd like to find someone that not only could represent the, the citizens of Arizona, but that could, could run for re-election if there were to be an opening. But uh, I'm hopeful that Senator Kyle, uh, and with everything going on, I'll, I'll leave that up to him, but he is the ideal person to be in, in that place at this time. If you think of this, that was Barry Goldwater's seat. 
that was John McCain's seat, and it was John Kyle that could go there and, and, and fill it for, for these purposes. Governor, during your first run for this seat, you talked a lot about bringing a business perspective to government, and you were criticized by those who said, hey, look, running a government is nothing like running a business. Now that you've kind of seen beneath the hood of the car, what is your take on this approach? Is it working? Well, I believe bringing a business-like approach to government is what I wanted to do. And I think sometimes that can be confused as people say that you want to run a government like a business. I don't believe I've ever said that. But I do think this idea of, as a chief executive, setting a vision, charting a course, picking the people, uh, that's a business-like approach. And that's something I've been very comfortable doing. That's what I've uh, aspired to achieve. And if you do go to the agencies uh, at, at, at that level, uh, which is not very exciting, it's not very fun, because that's where a lot of the work of government gets done. Each agency understanding its individual and unique mission, why it exists, and then the metrics that they will uh, steer towards so that they can say we're going in the right direction or the wrong direction, having a transparent view of how we're spending taxpayer money, and then a way to memorialize this. You know, what did we do the last 90 days? What do we do the next 90 days? Because that's the only way as, as a governor uh, with 40-plus with agencies and, and an enterprise this large that I can actually have a handle on, on the direction and who's doing well, who, who needs improvement, and who shouldn't be there any longer. And, of course, I've got an incredibly talented team uh, as well. You've said that one of the biggest learning curves in entering public life was dealing with the media. You didn't have to deal with us as much, or I guess in this way, you certainly didn't have to podcast with people when you were at Coldstone. Have you been treated fairly? Well, I want to say specifically, it was dealing with the political media. All right. I will tell you the business media is much different. I'm a big sports fan. I think the sports media, I've been in this position allowed to sit in some of these press conferences and watch uh, major college sports and major professional sports. And uh, the media treats those principles quite different. Um, I, I think you can't complain about the media. This is just something you have to navigate. Uh, it's the price of admission. I think I've become better uh, along the way. I think I've built some relationships and I try not to uh, focus on the small stuff. I mean, you can't sweat the small stuff. Um, you, you are here to, to, to scrutinize um, and to illuminate what, what's going on. And I think if you, if, if you focus on every slight or everything you thought was uh, improperly presented, I don't know how you could do this job. So you have to be aware of what's being said out there, how you're being covered. I've spent the time off uh, the record or on background or having coffee to, to build some trust. And then you go out and do your best and hopefully you get the best possible coverage. And certainly there's some articles I have liked more than others. <laughs> your Democratic challenger, David Garcia, and many of your critics say that you have put the interests of special interest groups like the Chamber of Commerce or the Koch brothers, um, that's that complete baloney. Okay, we'll that get is there. Complete okay, ahead of your uh, ahead of everyday Arizonans um, that you were elected to to represent. What is your response to that criticism? Because that is an overriding theme of his campaign. And we'll see how it works on November sixth. Because I think that's complete baloney. We have been focused on opportunity for all since the day I came into office. That's the agenda that we've moved forward. We've got a booming economy in the state of Arizona. We've got more jobs available than we have people to fill them. 
We've also focused on restoring funding in K-12 education, and we're improving in K-12 education. So what I ran on is what I've worked on. If you look at the inauguration or the state of the state, that's been the, the focus uh, all, along the way. And, and that's what my opponents are trying to, to paint me with. Uh, they've been unsuccessful to date, and I'm going to work as hard as I can over the next 24 days to make sure that they're unsuccessful once again in terms of trying to present me uh, as something that I'm not. You have pledged to try to ensure opportunity for all during your administration, but we still do have strict limits on social welfare programs, and your office is seeking work requirements for Medicaid recipients. So how, how does that reconcile with that pledge? Well, first, I don't judge the success of my administration by how many people we have on social welfare programs. I judge our success by how many people we move off social welfare programs. So we want to have the incentives in, in the right place, and we do want to incentivize work and, and, and investment. So I think there's, of course, uh, we've protected the social safety net. That's why we balanced the budget in that first year, really tightened the belt and made difficult decisions because it is the most vulnerable that rely and depend on the government as, uh, as, as, as the last provider. So we put ourselves in a position where we could secure that social safety net. But now we want to grow the economy so that people can go and climb the economic ladder. And I think we that was a philosophy and uh, an idea and an aspiration four years ago. That's a reality today in terms of what's happening in Arizona's uh, economy and, and job creation. 260,000 new private sector jobs in the state of Arizona over the last three years. Maricopa County is the fastest growing county in the country. There's a lot of positive things happening in Arizona. A lot of people kind of switching gears here, they want to influence you on policy and politics. How do you weigh who has access to the table? Well, I listen. Uh, I'm out uh, in public quite a bit. Uh, I enjoy reading. Uh, I, I, of course, rely on my team, but I, I think if, if someone wants to communicate with me or, or visit with me, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm out in, in public quite often. I'm, I, I think you would say I'm an accessible governor. You didn't meet, for example, with the March for Our Lives activists. What was your thinking there? Well, I meet with young people all the time. I meet with teachers all the time. I do try to stay out of some of the political activism that, that's happening. And I, when someone has a, a, a motive or wants to play gotcha, what, why would I knowingly walk into those situations? We put out the Arizona Safe School Plan proactively. We may be the only administration in the country that has proactively acted on this. I've met with uh, young people. I met with students. I met with uh, leaders inside the schools, principals and superintendents, law enforcement leaders. Those were the people that, that I w was meeting with. Uh, and I did stay out of uh, the, the political activism of, okay. of, of the issue. So certainly there are a lot of Arizonans who feel as though you don't represent them, whether it's for political reasons, other reasons. How do you reach them? How do you connect with them? How do you connect your policies and your goals in a meaningful way to maybe change some of their minds? Well, first, I think it's uh, how you communicate. And I am proud of uh, the way that we've communicated. It's also getting out of the office. I mean, I, I've been to Southern Arizona 56 times since I've been a, elected governor. I've been in every county in, in the state. I will go in, in any room unless it's one of these, you know, gotcha setup type situations. And, and I, I think I've 
demonstrated that. So I, I do want to represent all of our citizens. Uh, I've said that I'm governor of all the people. And I think you see our administration as well. After the election was over and we had won, I said, that's behind us. Now it's time to lead and it's time to govern. And part of that is, is communicating with, with our citizens and listening. You thought that those March for the Lives activists, I know they overtook your, your executive suite lobby there, right? You, you, you thought I, that was I, kind I, of like a gotcha moment? No, I think the issue is a very real issue. And I acknowledge and, and honor the, the issue. Uh, and I guess when you're in, in public office, uh, of course, that's a public building. And people can come and, and stay there and stay there for long periods of time. And we were very respectful of that. But we were dealing on the policy of the issue. We actually put together a package that could have avoided every mass shooting in American history since Columbine. To me, mm. that was the worthy work of school safety. Like a lot of elected officials, you've been forced to walk this political tightrope in the era of President Donald Trump. It seems like you get just close enough to be professional, but not too close to be really automatically associated with him in ways that other elected officials are. What's it been like to navigate that relationship? And do you dispute my characterization of it? Well, I hear different characterizations about it. I've got a, a positive relationship with the president and, and with the vice president. Um, I, I sat next to him at a, a private White House dinner where I was one of five governors that was invited. I'm going to do whatever I believe is in the best interest of the citizens of Arizona. So when the president's right, I've been on board. And when I think there's a, a, a decision that needs to be changed, I do use my relationship to try to influence it in whatever way I, I can. And I'll give you two examples. One is about having children separated from their, their parents. That was something we were outspoken on before the administration changed their policy. And the other thing was free trade with Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I, I uh, brought that up to the president when uh, we were visiting at, at the White House. Now, I always thought that the president was going to make the right decision around trade with, with Mexico and, and Canada. But in the, in the spirit that we were any small part of that, that was something that I was uh, presenting on and, and, and doing my best to be persuasive on. And I think it's worked out well for, for the people in Arizona and certainly for the job creators and, and for our number one trading partner. I want to talk about the child migrant issue, but first, what was it like sitting next to the president at that White House dinner? Well, that's one of the special honors of, of being the governor. I was actually able to attend dinner with President Barack Obama twice before uh, uh, the 16 election. And it's always special to go to the White House. I always feel like someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, you got an ID, son. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it, for me, it's an incredible experience each time I've been uh, invited to the White House. Did you and the president talk? Oh, yes. What else, no, what else did you talk when about? You're, when you're with the president, uh, you're, you're going to talk. He's, <laughs> he's going to talk, and um, he's got a lot of questions. There were five other governors there. He, wanted, he had knowledge and information on the, the situation in each of our states, the races in each of our states. So we talked both the economy, uh, policies in our states, and, and what the political environment was like. And I, and I was uh, 
pleasantly surprised. I, I, I knew that he was aware of Arizona. He's been to Arizona, I think, seven times when he campaigned and several times after that. But he had the same situation with with uh, New, New Mexico, with, with Kentucky, uh, with Arkansas. I mean, with each of the states, he, he knew what was going on. What was his assessment of Arizona's politics? He, I think he, he sees Arizona as a as a deep red Republican state, uh, and I know that we do have that reputation. Uh, the president won the state by three plus points. Our demographics are changing. You know, the two hundred thousand people that I like to brag on that have moved here in the last three years, many of them are Californians. Uh, sometimes they forget why they left California. So I do think of our state as a very independent state, if you want to call it a purple. state state. And I think uh, that's okay because as a governor, I, I want to get out and make the case as to why my ideas and my policies are, are better than the opposition or, or, or my opponent. And I think there's a really clear contrast if you look at the governor's race this year in terms of what I want to do is build the momentum of what we've been able to do when I say secure Arizona's future. I, I haven't forgotten that we dug out of a $1 billion hole four years ago. I haven't forgotten about the lawsuits that were happening in education and that our economy was flat. My opponent wants to go the exact opposite direction. And, uh, and in Arizona, I think uh, I welcome that contrast. So going back to the migrant facilities, you and your wife, Angela, visited one of them. Yes. What were your impressions? Well, Angela said, I want to go see one of these facilities. When that news broke and it became national news and, and it was being presented in a, in a horrific way, and I do think there are some really tough situations uh, about what is happening on the border and what's happening at Mexico's southern border as well with these people that are fleeing you know, the oppression of El Salvador and Guatemala and uh, Honduras. We only visited one facility, but I do want to say the facility that we visited was incredibly professional and clean and the social workers there were taking great care of, of people in a very difficult situation. Um, so we saw one facility. We've also seen the reports of what's happening at other facilities. We've had our Department of Health Services uh, investigating this and, and I think holding people accountable that they're providing adequate care and, and shelter uh, for these folks that are in real crisis. Assuming you win another term, what does a second term of uh, Governor Doug Ducey, what does that look like? Well, I want to say first, I think there will be something that we can really build on here. There is a momentum in terms of our economy. If you like the growth in our economy right now, if you like the latest budget projections, you know, you haven't seen anything yet. I mean, this is really just two years in to what was a four-year term. We really had to take two years to, to dig out, out of the hole. So this idea of growing our economy, being a great place to, to live, work, and play, I think there's a lot more to be done there. I think we have a huge opportunity with Mexico to continue that relationship. I want to get things done on school safety proactively. So that was left undone in, in a first term. And I think water is a big issue. Uh, it's not a really sexy issue. It's not uh, very exciting to talk about, but it is a responsibility. It's another reason that I was uh, thrilled that Senator Kyle said yes, because there are things that can be done in the short term on the drought contingency plan around water. There's some reform that needs to be done. But there's also a generational project. When we talk about Roosevelt Dam or Hoover Dam or Central Arizona Project, those were things that were decades in the making. Uh, there's a generational project that would, if I am fortunate enough to have a second term, that would, would 
certainly outlive that. And it's probably around a desalination project. Um, and this is something that will allow Arizona to, to have a future well into the well in, in, into um, decades in, ahead in the 21st century. But the first things first is the drought contingency plan. Are you and a Senator Kyle working towards some of those goals already? Well, well Senator Kyle and I do talk uh, mm -hmm. on that, of course, and so does my senior staff. Okay. How has the job overall changed you? How has the job overall changed me? I think I'm the same person that I was, a lot smarter, um, more humble, and uh, I am going to resist a, a temptation that I have to, to make a decision quickly to make sure I have all the facts and, and information. Now, sometimes you have to make a decision. I mean, that's uh, when the phone rings, you have to make a decision. But on some of these other things, you have the opportunity to put smart people at the table to build coalitions and that's that's the best way to move policy forward when you can do that when you can anticipate it when you can see the issue coming other times there's there's things that happen that you have to act on how has it changed your family i mean they've gotten a front row seat to pretty momentous events i remember the pope coming i remember, did, they got to see the pope didn't well, they well, they my family my family's doing great uh, yes i i think it's a, a honor and, and very special uh, that they've been able to be a part of, of some of these things, whether it's at, at the national level or, of course, with Senator McCain and how we, we honored him here. But my, my family's do, doing great. Thank God. The last time I talked to your wife, Angela, I think it was the first and only time I was able to interview her, but it was great. She said, you guys have a ritual. Your family has a ritual. Every year you sit down at the kitchen table and you write down your goals for the next year. What are your goals for 2019. Are you starting to think about them yet? Well, of course, and you will hear all about them in inauguration <laughs> in the state of the state if, if, I'm, if, the, if citizens grant me the opportunity to give those presentations. <laughs> Is one of the goals maybe like visiting Iowa or New Hampshire no, anytime soon? No, no. It's visiting Cochise County and Santa Cruz uh, and get, getting up to Coconino. All right. A couple speed questions and we're going to wrap this up. Did you know what a bot was before a bunch of them started following no, you didn't. on Twitter? I didn't know what a bot was. What is a bot? I they're like robot Twitter accounts essentially. I, so I, you didn't I, know. I, I think young people know what bots okay. are. Yeah. You didn't know what they were. No. Who do you text first thing in the morning? Who do I, normally my senior staff? Okay. Who um, is on speed dial? Mike Pence or Charles Koch? I I can tell you that neither of them are on speed dial. Who is on speed dial? Angela Ducey, my three <laughs> sons. Kirk, Kirk Adams. Adams. Yes. Can you say Daniel Scarpiano? <laughs> Yvonne Winget. <laughs> Not really. Can you say something nice about David Garcia? Oh, the sure. Democratic challenger? Sure, I can. I could probably say several things nice. I think that, of course, I honor David's military service. I uh, don't know David's family, but he has a beautiful family. He seems devoted to them. And, um, uh, and I think he's, he's been a success. David Garcia's uh, led a successful life. 
Final question, who wins the U.S. Senate race, Martha McSally or Kirsten Sinema? I believe that Martha McSally is going to win that race. I think these next 24 days will really matter. I think they will in every race. I don't think any race has been decided yet, but uh, people are going to start now paying attention, and I think when they do, they'll see Martha McSally as the authentic, real deal and that she represents the values of Arizona, and especially with Senator John McCain missing uh, in the United States Senate, Martha McSally br brings the the uh, moral suasion of talking to people in uniform, the moral authority to talk to people in uniform about military and defense issues, and I think that's critical at at, at this time, especially looking what's happening around the globe. All right, Governor. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thanks for having I me. I hope Yvonne. our listeners are going to love it. It's been fun, and I hope we are going to be able to sit down and do this again, maybe we will. in January after the State of the State. Thank you so much to our listeners for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. And can I point listeners to your Twitter account, Governor? It's at Doug Ducey and at Team Ducey. You can find new episodes of The Gaggle every Wednesday. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us improve our show. This episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley, Taya Francesca Price, and Kayla White. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.